are listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. Look, you're here for the inaugural episode of Speech Bubble. This is the very first episode. What we're trying to do here is this is basically an interview show. As our great uh, announcer told you off the top, it is where we go one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. And we interview everybody that has something to do with the comic book scene, writers, artists, journalists, shop owners, as many people as we can get to sit down in our studio, from big names to indie creators who work in Artist Alley, and people that I have personal relationships with. I've been a comic fan for years, and I've lived in Toronto since 2003, and in that time I've met a lot of people that are part of the scene, so I wanted to put together a podcast. My first guest sitting here with me is Mr. Joe Kilmartin. Uh, Joe Kilmartin is sort of a retail legend. Uh, The Simpsons have the comic book guy, and Toronto has Joe Kilmartin. He's been in the comic book scene for years. He used to be sort of the lobby lad at uh, Dragon Lady Comics. Then he moved on to the comic book lounge and gallery. And he's just chock full of information about the beginning of the Toronto comic book scene. So, with that in mind, I'd like to introduce my first guest, Joe Kilmartin. Hi there. Hey, welcome, Joe. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. This is really awesome. Thank you very much. I, I'm a little nervous, to tell you the truth, but that's okay. <laughs> You're on the pilot. I couldn't think of a better guest. <laughs> Joe is pretty much one of the stalwarts of the comic book scene. I mean, I came here late, too, which is the scary part. Anything pre-86 is largely hearsay to me. So, he used to be the manager of Dragon Lady Comics. Mm-hmm. He was also the former manager of the comic book lounge and gallery. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of the, I don't know, comic book guy to the stars, at least the local writers and artists who used to shop. I look like the comic at, book guy. That, that's part of it. Yeah. Who, who used to shop at uh, Dragon Lady and those. I'm those kind of rocking a nerd Santa look these days, actually. It's a really good look. I just like it. I'm into that. I guess the first thing I want to talk to you about, even though I know you very well and we've had many hour-long conversations at the counter when you were working as a retailer. actually. (laughs) I always look forward to those. I don't really know that much about your background and your history in the comic book scene. Okay. So, I kind of want to start out not so much at the history of Dragon Lady and that sort of thing, but just how did you get into comics in the first place? I got into comics because I was a very big Disney fan when I was a kid. My parents looking for something safe to give me to watch and seeing that I responded well to it always. Um, well, actually, that's not entirely true because the first thing that I responded to was the Batman TV show, which was being rerun on CBC, I think at like 4.30 or 5 in the afternoon. So I remember coming from four-year-old kindergarten and maybe preschool and watching it with my dad in the afternoon. That was my initial Pam of, my God, what is this stuff? Then there was the Disney fandom, and the Disney fandom led into me getting 
my first comic, which was uh, an Uncle Scrooge comic, which to this day I don't know the issue number. I have, I have suspicions, but it's one of those things you're like, okay, is this the thing? I'm going to be so disappointed if it isn't, so I don't know if I want to look. Because the cover was missing from it, and on any old comics, especially old funny animal comics, the cover never matched the contents. The cover was always like its own gag, and so I have no idea what the cover looks like on this Uncle Scrooge comic that was my first comic. Then reading a lot of Disney Digests, which got me into reading comics in general, picking up more kind of cartoon-related things, and then getting into superhero comics as a result of the Spider-Man cartoon. And that the was the all, original 1960s. Yeah, well, there wasn't anything to compare it to in okay. 1973. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, and then the real, of course, the, the mother load hitting around the age of 10 for me, which coincided with Star Wars being released. And I didn't see Star Wars until, like, late in the run. I didn't see Star Wars until November of its release because, again, 1977, even though a movie was very successful, you wouldn't necessarily run out to see the movie. It's not like opening weekend now. It's very different. And there was no concept of the blockbuster back then. Well, no, no. The blockbuster existed for a couple of years before that because Jaws and a few other movies did okay. ridiculously well. Okay. But if you're in a middle class to lower middle class family, you could probably wait until it showed up on TV. The idea of having to go see this in the theater, which everybody was telling my parents they had to take me to, but uh, they weren't quite sure what this thing was. First of all, it didn't have the mouse related to it at all. That was always a sign of quality to them. Certain kind of hayseed quality, but quality <laughs> nonetheless. Yeah. Want to hear my impression of Disney movies in the 70s? Sure. Hey, somebody stop that kid! <laughs> That's my impression of a Disney movie in the 70s. Comics began with a vengeance around 75, 76, 77, and stayed very big for me. Just inform the listeners sort of what was going on in comics right at, at that the time. time Steve Englehart was writing The Avengers. Englehart then left Marvel and started writing Batman Detective Comics, which he did the run with Marshall Rogers. I remember Marshall Rogers' first Batman comic. I had it. It was a, a backup appearance where he drew the calculator, a villain who's since been made into this kind of scheming manipulator in DC Comics, who at the time wore a giant pocket calculator on his chest and shot number math at people. I don't know. It was comics. They did an extended kind of backup guest appearance in Detective Comics. It started with Green Arrow, who had the regular backup slot, and then it went to other superheroes as well, too, that he fought until Batman fought for about five or six issues, and I had that whole run. Just recently, they reprinted the Irv Novik. can't think of the writer's name. I want to say it's Mike Barr, who murdered Batman storyline, which has a great cover of all the villains at that time, including Lex Luthor standing around a closed grave with a headstone at the end of it with Here Lies Batman, May He Rest in Peace. And the Joker has written Rot in Hell over Rest in Peace. And when you're an eight-year-old or nine-year-old comic book fan, your first response when you see that in the Max Milk is, Whoa! I've got to get this! Yeah, because so, yeah. there was no direct market back then, right? There was a direct market, but it was only in very big cities. All my Ottawa peeps know the Silversnale, Ottawa, but there's a long-standing tradition of the conniving comic book manager come impresario that kind of began with Arthur in Ottawa for me. And there's another shop in Ottawa called Stephanie's that had the most amazing stacks of back issues that actually were priced in a system very similar to any kind of used bookstore was at the time, which was the older it was, the less expensive it was. Which, rumor has it, is how Ron Van Leeuwen stocked up the Silver Snail the first time around with all of its really good stuff. He hit Stephanie's, bought all the 60s Marvel stuff, especially the early 60s Marvel stuff, for a song. Yeah, and pretended like they weren't valuable. Exactly, and then drove back to Toronto and sold them at the Snail for his opening weekend. 
But that's apocryphal. I don't know if that's entirely true. It's a lovely rumor. Well, it's one of those ones you kind of hope is true. Well, that brings us to about 76 or 77, which is when stuff started happening in Toronto. And Ron, I think, started out of BACA, which was already existing as a science fiction bookstore. They had a signing with Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, and Mark Hamill for the tour for the Star Wars novelization. Really? Yes. There's wow. photos that they have in BACA of them signing the books. And this is just like a science fiction bookstore, basically? Yeah, because yeah, wow. BACA exists. See, science fiction had a huge revival in the early 70s. Like, the whole kind of post-Star Trek thing was enormous. The kind of lingering Tolkien fans led into the kind of Del Rey science fiction and fantasy thing. So, BACA existed as a bookstore for a long time. Science fiction and fantasy was always kind of a hippie thing, too, especially in England. Anytime you hear stories about old UK fans, it all comes from this Mike Moorcock, guys in raincoats and hippies reading science fiction (laughs) (laughs) and getting together in like these kind of big halls where they trade things with each other. And it's a very different kind of fandom than it is over here. It's a much more mercantile fandom in North America than it is in England. So in 77, they did a signing with Harrison. Did you go? God, no. I honestly think that Star Wars replaced any concept of religious iconography in my life when I was 11 years old. I was a Star Wars kid. Before that, I'd been a G.I. Joe kid. But let me tell you, Star Wars, oh my God, Star Wars. It was amazing. So then in terms of comics, it was uh, Steve Englehart. Yeah, in comics, it was Steve Englehart. Ross Andrew was drawing Spider-Man, which was being written. uh, Oh, somebody's going to hate me for this. It might have been Jerry Conway coming back. I don't remember, but it was, no, it was Len Wein and Marv Wolfman who who were, who were uh, doing pretty well everything at Marvel at that time because they're the only ones who could get anything in on time. Wolfman on Fantastic Four and Len Wein writing Avengers and Thor and, uh, oh shoot. Like, I mean, this is around the time I can remember buying, uh, Daredevil comics that weren't by Frank Miller. I can remember being told to buy Frank Miller comics by a cousin of mine and not really being that interested in it because, hey, it's Daredevil. Come on, honestly, I read a Daredevil comic. How good is this going to be? Another big thing for me is uh, we did a trip, a road trip down to Florida when I was probably about, probably around this time, around nine or ten. And I saw both Origins of Marvel Comics and Sons of Origins of Marvel Comics in a bookstore down there and quickly grabbed them up. And so I was reading kind of the, the hardcore Marvel canon. The Bible, so to speak. So that was like reprints of like the 1960s That was all of the first issues of most of the stuff written with an incredibly self-aggrandizing introduction for each by Stan. (laughs) Um, (laughs) God loves Stan Lee. Stan, oh Stan. Stan is, of course, the Pope of fandom now. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There is a strange religious kind of underpinning to all of this, I think, to somebody who's been in it for a long time. Your secular faith gets kind of absorbed by all this stuff. I think it's that fascinating statistic that a lot of people wrote Jedi down for the religion of choice when the first opportunity came in yeah. the Canadian census. Something like 80,000 Jedi in Canada or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy. Like, I mean, you have to appreciate Stan, but... There are two sides to Stan. There's Stan, the guy who did stuff, and then there's Funky Flashman. And Funky Flashman, the fourth world character that Jack created as soon as he left Marvel, is Stan Lee. Anything that is ugly about Stan Lee is Funky Flashman. What we're talking about is 
how he takes credit for everything and he lies by omission. Yes, his memory is conveniently poor sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> If it doesn't hurt the jive, he's perfectly ready to acknowledge people's stuff, but he understands the value of the jive yeah. and is perfectly ready to give the jive at all times. Well, now he has to acknowledge people like Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby because people call well, him out on it. But yes, if they didn't but call him then, out on it, he wouldn't. And this it. was it. Fandom at the time was very one-sided. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had your little corner of it and as far as you knew, you were isolated. This is something that has changed dramatically over the years is the idea of somebody being able to find any kind of society and fandom. And the whole point behind fandom at the time was loving the thing and not being part of a community. The idea of being part of a community was only reflected by the latter pages of the comics, which is how most people met other people back in the day. I was lucky in that the city that I was in had a very active science fiction fandom, which grew a little polyp of comics fandom. With its own, like, fanzine and everything like that? Yeah. I was a contributing writer for a comics club in Ottawa. It's called the International Comics Collectors Club. International because we had members in a few places around the world. Like a smattering. Like, there's one guy in Tanzania. There's another guy. In- <laughs> <laughs> so, we're international now, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my first meeting, I got to meet people like Janet Hetherington, who's still actively involved in comics now. She does romantic horror comics. and She was a hardcore DC fan at the time that I was making the change over to Marvel. Sven Larsen, who may be responsible for die cuts and polybags on our own comics when he was a marketing director at Marvel, who was just a fan at the time that I knew him. A lot of people in the Ottawa area all kind of got together as comic fans around that time. I was maybe one of 20 people in that group, and, wow. and I was very, very young. I was like 11 or 12. Wow. But Elizabeth Holden, who is like one of the letter hacks of all letter hacks, like if you look at a comic in the 70s, especially in the late 70s yeah, or early 80s. No, no, no. She wrote letters. She's one of those people who's oh. continually in there as a letter oh, writer. Okay. She was a letter hack, That's not a letterist. Oh, okay. No, no, no. She sent letters into everything and she was always published. Yeah. And so there's this kind of, oh, Elizabeth's got a letter in this one too. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, I can't remember his official name, but his, his moniker was the Mad Maple, TM Maple. And he was a Toronto guy who basically wrote to everybody and was often published. The understanding at the time at Marvel was DC was always kind of sketchy with their letter columns. What they would do is they'd often take somebody's letter and they'd they'd either print like the two or three lines that they wanted people to hear, ostensibly so they could get more on the page. Or if there was a criticism, they would write the criticism and then basically respond to the criticism. You wouldn't see it in letter format the way that you would over at Marvel. And so both Marvel and DC had this policy where they didn't want to print somebody's letter in more than one comic. They didn't want one guy who wrote, say, 20 letters to either company that month. Mm-hmm. And these guys would do that. Under their own names? Under their own names. But okay. apparently because TM Maple's letters were so well composed and basically interesting to the people who were editing the letters pages, and frankly, in some cases, in a comic like Daredevil, before Frank Miller was on it, there was maybe only three letters coming in that month. And so they had to put something in there. I mean, honestly, if the human fly has a letters page, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, the letters are going to be, there's not probably that many letters going what into What was it. some of the content? Like, what would people say? There's a lot like what you'd see on a message board now, but it was much more formally structured. And a lot of it were people throwing out ideas or kind of fan-based notions. 
one of the things that people would often do is bring in their suggestions for casting for movies or TV for superhero things, and you'd always see that in the letter column. Well, and wasn't it possible back then, if you were a fan, to potentially change what was going on in the company? Like, didn't didn't Jerry Bales, didn't he, like... Well, Jerry Bales is... Yeah. He's, like, he's like the Ur fan, though, man. Like, Jerry is is enormous. Yeah, yeah. It's like Ray Thomas. He like, created I mean, the idea for the Silver Age Justice League, right? Yeah, him and Nor Thomas, the two of them. By saying, like, why don't you bring back these Golden Age heroes and reinvent them? See, that's 1950, and that's at a time when they weren't expecting to get any kind of mail yeah, related it, to superheroes it, because the comics that were selling were monsters and westerns. Exactly. So, especially comics fandom is a very cyclical thing as far as genre is concerned. Mm. And then there's that thing about the guy who was paid money for the Spider-Man black costume idea. Remember yeah, that? Yeah, I can't remember his name. Yeah, and that happens all the time, and that's why a lot of companies have a policy of no submissions as far as letters are concerned. But if you sneak one in, then... Yeah, exactly. Very interesting. It's I mean, a that- very, very different culture, and it's almost quaint in comparison to the monster that fandom is now. Very insular, of course. Oh, yeah, well, that's that's what fandom was, though. And I'm going to be making a broad generalization here, and that's the sort of thing that people love to jump on when they're going to say anything about anything. But fans in general were people who were outside of the societal norm, who were into something that they knew was different from the things that everybody else liked, partially because it was something they liked. Mm-hmm. But also, I think in many cases, it was because it was different from the stuff that everybody liked, and they saw themselves as being different from those people. That was a way of self-identifying as being outside of the norm. It certainly wasn't gym class that they were interested in. I understand that you met a lot of comic book professionals when they were young. Yeah, well, that's that's longevity more than anything else. Uh I mean, again, I went to my first con in... (laughs) Mark Asquith calls this a weekend that changed his life. I happened to meet him at, I think it was MavelCon 3. I have the program at home. You could say hi to anybody. The idea of having to stand in line to get a signature from somebody to come back in the day, let alone pay for a signing fee, was crazy. You pay your mission to get into the show, and then they were sitting at a table. They might have been signing between this time and that time, but the idea of of monetizing signatures was not a thing. And Mark Asquith, for those who don't know, he's now like a supervising producer at Space. He produces Inner Space. He was the executive producer of Prisoners of Gravity for TV Ontario. Mm -hmm. He was the manager of the Silver Snail for a long time. Uh, A lot of people believe he's single-handedly responsible for introducing Neil Gaiman to North America because he met Neil when he did an initial trip to England to meet Alan Moore, and Neil was just a fan at the time. He met Neil as a Douglas Adams fan when Neil was writing essays about Douglas Adams, and Mm -hmm. Douglas Adams was introducing around the blokes at the pub sort of thing, and, oh, here's Neil. He writes stuff about me. Mark is one of those kind of tipping point Ur fans as well, too. Sure, I know a lot of people when they were kind of up and coming, but if you want to look at people who are ridiculously connected in fandom, Mark is one of those. So you met him. Why did he call it the con that changed his life? Well, it's because he met Frank Miller there. Uh, He met Elizabeth Holden. He met Sven Larson. Mark was instrumental in getting Sven work. I wouldn't say he's responsible, but he had something to do with getting Sven work at Marvel. Elizabeth, again, just knew everybody through letter columns. And I was there as this 10-year-old kid working as a gopher at the show, although looking a lot older because I was always tall and kind of fat. So I always looked about four or five years older than I still look four or five years older than I am. Basically, uh, we all met each other then. Then I met Mark. Mark kept coming to shows, so I met him. I mean, I can remember my first show. Shoot, who was there? Jim Shooter, George Perez, Chris Claremont, Terry Austin, the creative team for Master of Kung Fu, everybody. Wow, that's awesome. Everybody. So Gene Day, Adam McGregor was there, Doug Mensch, who was writing it at the time, 
our Secret Wars guy, whose name is failing me right now. Oh, Mike Zach? Mike Zach was there. I met Mike the first time there. I reminded George Perez that I met him in 1980, maybe about eight years ago. And he looked at me with all the blood leaving his face. <laughs> oh my God. I go back. I'm like, well, you know, I started young. So, yeah. <laughs> so what was that first con called that you attended? MapleCon. MapleCon. And there was actually, there was a Toronto con that year. I can't think of what it was. I think it was CosmicCon. I remember buying a button that John Byrne had designed with Wolverine and Colossus and Nightcrawler on it. And it's basically Nightcrawler and Colossus in the foreground looking at Wolverine who's running gleefully away with a sign saying Toronto in the background and a word balloon from Nightcrawler. He said something about real beer and then disappeared. And hey, John Bernhardt. So yeah, yeah. that's somewhere in my mother's so, basement So what right year now. was that? Your first con? Maple 1980. Con. So I would have been 12. How did you get involved in sort of the retail end? How did you get I into- happened into the retail end because I was a regular shopper at both Dragon Lady and The Snail. Stuart Emanen, who I, <laughs> I just feel like I'm dropping names here. Stuart Emanen, who I met on a band exchange in high school. He went to your school? Or no. He, he, was he that the rival his, band? No. We're talking, he was in a high school in Northern Ontario. I was in Ottawa. Okay. We, we basically did an exchange. And so- he was a trombone player and his buddy Mark was doing the same. I was the bass player. And so when we did that kind of amalgamated orchestra thing that you always do for band exchanges when you're visiting, they were in with me. And so I got to meet them in that line. And I was told by somebody who knew, Joe, there's a couple of guys who are just like you. Why don't you go chat with them? The first night we met each other, we did almost this round robin Monty Python thing, standing with each other, almost like this strange kind of dance off. They would come out and do something. I would come out and do something in response. They would come out and do something. There's a circle like going around Like improv theater sort of? It thing? was weird, Aaron. I couldn't, I can't even Why? define it. I don't know. It was <laughs> weird, but it was fun. I think that speaks more to the isolation of fandom at the time. Like when you meet somebody else who's so into the shit that you are, and then it's like, bam, holy cow, they're just like me. Oddly enough, through coincidence, I met Mark and Stuart. Mark Huseman was his pal at the time, and they were hanging around a lot together, and basically Mark and Stuart both went to theater school. Stuart was there for art. Mark was there for theater. I was there for theater. And we happened to be in the same house in residence at York. Coincidence. Sheer coincidence. You already knew. But I already knew them from a van exchange six years earlier. I had people walk up to me and say, are you Ottawa Joe? And I'm like, yeah, I think so. And they said, come over here. And so basically I was reintroduced to them. And then that whole first year at York, which is 1986, we, we hung around a lot. Just to catch people up, Stuart is basically one of the uh, like amazing Canadian artists that does. Stuart Eminen is currently doing all new X Men at yeah. Marvel, but did incredible runs on the Avengers, on Ultimate Spider Man. Wrote and drew Avengers of Superman in the nineties. He's really an incredibly talented man. I feel very mm-hmm. lucky. To Often to collaborates with his, with his wife, right? Yeah, actually, I mm-hmm. I introduced Catherine to Stewart. Really? Yes. It was at a screening of Brazil at York. They did the work. I just introduced them. <laughs> <laughs> but there you go. The rest, they say, is history, right? So to speak, yes. Yeah, yeah. But Catherine, again, Catherine was in my audition at, to get into York at Ottawa, and she's from Ottawa as well. She was at York for costume design and has since become an incredibly talented writer, somebody who's very highly regarded in the field. And again, just so proud of both of them. They're just remarkably good people. So you were a regular customer at at Dragon Lady? Regular customer at Dragon Lady where I met Dave Dorigo Uh and met uh, Dave McPherson. When the management job came open, 
one summer I ended up sharing an apartment with Stuart and he and I um, are both looking for work. He got a job at Dragon Lady. I applied at the snail but didn't get it. When he left Dragon Lady, I applied for his position and I didn't get it. <laughs> and Dave Dorigo, who was the manager at the time, remembered me years later when I applied at Dragon Lady and he was still working at Dragon Lady, although not as manager at the time, and uh, basically put a word in for me. And so I started working at Dragon Lady in 98 as an occasional worker. And then I continued working at Dragon Lady. Was that your first retail? My first retail comics job. I'd done retail work at Kinko's. I met a lot of artists at Kinko's. Uh, oh, because they're photocopying because they'd their be books stuff and in. Met, and Yeah, stuff. I met Ty Templeton first at Kinko's. The nice thing about uh, Toronto as a city is because Sheridan has its very famous school of animation. A lot of people come to Toronto to be professional artists with an understanding of there being cartooning work involved in it. And this tends to lend itself a lot to comic book artists. There's an incredible history of comic book art talent from Toronto that largely stems from the Ontario School of Art and Sheridan College. This is before Toronto comics became their own thing. Yeah, a lot of people come to Toronto to do comics now too, which is kind of crazy, but that says a lot where comics have come in the past 30 years. Mm -hmm. What made you pursue a retail job in comics? Were you just like, I love it so much? I was, I well, I was really sick of the job that I was doing at the time too. So what was the job? Working as a telemarketer. I had to get out of that. Dragon Lady was nostalgia too, and that was another big part of my fandom. It was a very fortunate marrying of somebody whose interests matched the stuff that was in the store. How did Dragon Lady become the destination shop for artists? It, and, well, see, the thing um, is, it wasn't even always that. Like, okay. I mean, the snail has always been enormous, and okay. I, I don't mean to take anything at all away from the snail or any other shop, the beguiling, any of those places. Those are all awesome stories. I mean, every store is a destination to the people who shop there. When you establish a relationship with the people who run the shop that you're in, mm -hmm. or the place that you like to go to, whether it's because of physical proximity or it's just convenient for you, or say you've had a bad experience somewhere else, and that happens across the board. We happen to be in a corner of Little Italy in downtown Toronto, where a lot of people were moving into because it was in the annex, and we had all this other resource stuff in the store. We had art tears from older magazines like the Saturday Evening Post and Esquire and things like that, where people could see stuff like Noah Sickles art, or they could see stuff like Jeff Parker art, or Frank Leyendecker, or anybody like that. And there was a familiarity within the people who were on the floor at any given time with older art. So I think some people really were drawn to that. You meet people when they're in town, when they come to places like that, because we did have something that was more than just comics. We have a ridiculous number of comic stores in Toronto. There's so many shops in Toronto. I would even go as far as to say that outside of major American cities like, say, Los Angeles or New York or Chicago, Toronto has probably more comic shops per capita <laughs> than a lot of well, other And that's particularly amazing considering that they all serve their own little segment. There's a lot of different stores in Toronto. I mean, the snail has always been the toy shop. It's been, if you want to get a toy a comic-related toy or a media-related toy, you go to the snail, you don't go anywhere else. They have comics as well. They have great comics as well, but mm. it's a toy shop. Harry T is the gaming shop. Likewise, The Beguiling is the indie shop. For the longest time, Beguiling was the only place that really had any manga of any quality, mm. and so that's really where they got a lot of their panache. People don't like to acknowledge exactly how influential Pokemon or Sailor Moon were on comics, but they oh, were. Sailor Moon was the first anime that I watched. Pokemon was big for my brother. There is an entire generation of people, and you're part of it, who their familiarity with the thing that they love 
the idea of not being able to go into a mainstream store and buying it is insane. I was around just before you started seeing manga and anime and different things. I started collecting comics in 95 as a thing for my brother and my dad to do when my parents got divorced. We were in Vancouver and he said, there's a comic shop on West 4th and the comic shop, it's called the comic shop, is <laughs> legendary that. in Vancouver. I've been in the comic shop in West 4th. It, now it moved up the street a mm -hmm. little bit, but the way that I decided what comic I was going to start collecting was I had bought a few comics here and there at 7-Elevens and right. stuff. And I went back through looking for all the comics that I'd ever bought and I added up what was the title that I had the most and it turned out to be Spider-Man or right. Spider-Man related comics. So I thought, oh, I'll just start collecting Spider-Man comics because I already have Spider-Man so comics. So your creature distribution. And as a little kid, you know, really little, I used to feel bad that I didn't get to draw these characters. So I would add little stick figures and whatever into the background of sure. the panels because I felt like I wasn't part of the creative process and I needed to contribute somehow. I used to so, have people <laughs> apologize to me at Dragon Lady that they were going to be cutting things up. It's like, no, 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 go ahead. Uh, you know, this yeah. is what it's for. It's yours now. I, I mean, I totally wrecked the value as a kid, but I didn't I don't have know any if you wrecked the value that. as a kid. Let's shatter a couple myths right now. Most comic book people aren't the hoarding monsters that you see on The Simpsons. We're hoarders, but we don't have this necessity for pristine quality and outrageous fascination with grading. People who really love the stuff love the stuff on a level beyond a monetary level. And the idea of Having to have something in this kind of pristine mint, it's been slipcased and carded and saved thing, that's so not what the hobby is. And this is something that I think is generally perpetrated as a stereotype within the hobby that has been kind of turned into this conflagration of a monster of what somebody is like mm -hmm. as an adult. And one would hope that there's been a few years of development in between the time that you were 16 and say 30. I think that there is this kind of buttonholing that happens with the hobby and that most of the hobby's public face has been people desperately trying to work against that buttonholing. But anyway, you were a fan in the 90s, so you were part of So 95, so it was right around the clone saga of Spider-Man. I lived to regret that. And I didn't mind it because, you know, it was my first real comic. Were you a fan of the 90s Spider-Man cartoon as well? I was. Uh, Spider-Man in the 90s was appointment television. That was when I started, and then I got into Spawn like everybody did. I told Todd McFarlane this when I met him. That was my bridge between superhero comics and the really mature Vertigo titles. Right. And those sort of groundbreaking mature titles oh, yeah. like Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns right. and Sandman and those sorts of things. Well, Spawn and, say, Ghost Rider at the time and any of those kind of dark books that came back. Those were kind of patty cake versions of maturity. It's a good bridge if you're going from regular superheroes. Dark is cool. To darker that superheroes. Age. Absolutely. And then you go into like the maturity. Why do you think Batman's lasted 80 years? Dark <laughs> is cool. People like dark. As you get older, regular superheroes start to become more hokey and you want something that has the perception of seriousness. Oh, to sure. It. And then in grade 11, I met my math tutor, Neil. And okay. he saw all my comics, like graphic novels, like Kingdom Come and different things. And he's like, you have groundbreaking comics missing from your collection. 
like, I can't believe you haven't read Dark Knight Returns. I can't believe you haven't read Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. You needed a good comic dealer. He essentially (laughs) was like, okay, you have to borrow all this stuff. Here's Sandman. Here's Watchmen. Here are those 80s comics. And then it just blew my mind even further. Right. That you could take it that far. And it was exactly what I was looking for in terms of literary comics. Totally different way of dealing with the subject matter than I had known from before. And I've jumped from Marvel to DC, and now, because I'm not really into the New 52, back to Marvel. Not Image really. is like what Vertigo used to be. Image has finally actually assumed its mantle of being the company that it should have been, now that people can't pitch to Vertigo. You ended up meeting all these people because they would shop at Dragon they would shop at And they ended up putting you in the background of some of their comics, right? Like, what issues have you been Oh, in? man. Darwin Cook and Jay Bowen put me into a, a Spider-Man comic. Stuart drew me into the background of a Superman comic ages ago. I was actually in his and Catherine's indie comic, Not Runners, which is one of the books that they did with a writer named Sheldon Inkle. I look a certain way, too. Like, I mean, I'm kind of recognizable. So if somebody drops me into the back of a panel or something, I always get a kick out of it. You have, like, the stereotypical comic book guy look, kind of? Honestly, I'm over 300 pounds. I have a beard. I wear glasses. Yeah. Michael Cho drew me as the comic book guy for Chickadee, and his editor apparently looked at the drawing and said, oh my god, that's exactly what I was looking for, not knowing that I actually was a human being. (laughs) (laughs) So, what is it like when you first see yourself in a comic? It's fun. Do they let you know, or do you just Usually, they kind of surprise you with it. It's fun. So, you're at Dragon Lady, but then eventually, Dragon Lady closes shop. Largely due to rent increases and uh, the owner just being at a point where he didn't want to continue anymore. Frankly, and I don't think John would object to my saying this, he had a kind of a marketing concept that I, as a, as a manager, was not allowed to change. And it was one that was very, very worthy in 1980, say, but come 2011 was very much not. What was it? Buy as much as you can, sell it for as much as you can, which then became buy as much as you can of the stuff that people are reading and then sell it for as much as you can. Mm-hmm. John lasted as long as he did because he was perfectly willing to profit on the books. Could and we give his last name or no? Oh, John Burnett. Sure. Yeah. He's the guy who's the owner, actually, still of Dragon Lady. He and I still talk all the time. I don't think he'd object to my saying that because in 1978 or 79, the idea of secondary merchandise didn't exist back then, so you didn't really stock it, especially when you can reinvest money in more comics or more magazines mm-hmm. or more other things. We had a lease increase that just went crazy as far as our, our rent was concerned. And so, that, and at the time, a lot of stores in general were shutting down because of that. Book City and a few other key Toronto periodical locations, like places that sold books and magazines, were going down at the same time. A spate of all these things kind of closing. And it's largely because... Um, Death of print, too. Well, that's part of it. Yeah, It's really more a matter of people just not having money to spend on things anymore. We had one of our regular customers, a Dragon Lady, who was... When I say this number, it sounds insane to me now, but he was spending about $1,000 a week on comics. A week? A week. Whoa. Wow. A thousand bucks. Wow. At, at I wonder what peak. the wife thought. He's not married. But this is the thing. And then he had a bit of a job threat. Then he basically had a cutback on the amount that he could spend. Then we felt it, you know, because when you have somebody like that, as a customer. Basically a whale. You save that whale. Exactly. That's the tree you want to hug yeah, yeah, when yeah. you're a retailer, right? But hey, he existed. He still does. He yeah. still shops. I know where he shops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and he's an example of uh, there being a general decline in sales. We weren't the only shop who felt it. There were a few other stores who were closing at the time. 
a lot of this stuff is changing now. Mm-hmm. The shift that's happening from periodical culture to a collected culture is something that actually started in magazines back in the 50s, moving to paperbacks. And the death of magazines around 1970. And then it's echoed again in comics. And the inability to sell back issues, unless it's to somebody who is looking for those pristine copies of something or another, because everything's being reprinted by the publishers now. But we're also seeing it in television now. The whole idea of Netflix and being able to sit down and watch an entire season of something instead of waiting week by week, taping it. Well, and that even started with DVDs and the idea of releasing whole seasons of shows. Well, that was around in England for a long time. And then North America wise to the fact that people would buy that stuff. And now, well, let's look at Netflix and its arrangement with Marvel and the fact that you have somebody creating original material that's never meant to be broadcast to an open audience. And they know that if they tried to do it to an open audience, they wouldn't get the ratings for it to last that's right. anyway. So that's it needs right. to be niche. It needs to be Netflix. niche. And the idea of expecting somebody who really wants to watch Dancing with the Stars to enjoy an episode of Daredevil is unrealistic. And it's not to criticize people who like, you know, American <laughs> Idol or Dancing with the Stars. Yeah, They're not my cup of exactly. There you go. (laughs) Why should they be expected to like something that isn't their cuppa, which might be a Heroes for Hire TV series, which if they go totally grindhouse on, I'm going to be the happiest man alive, Aaron. This is crazy exciting. For those of you that don't know the announcement, Marvel and Netflix have inked a deal largely because of Disney owning Marvel and already having exclusive deals for their Disney properties. Netflix is going to produce exclusive series of Heroes for Hire. That's Luke Cage and Iron Fist. Jessica Jones, and I think they're going for a sort of an alias vibe. Yeah. Uh, I think they're going to go gritty urban woman post-superhero. Yeah, well, that would be good. If, and in, the if fact that she used direction. to be an Avenger at one point will it's work. It's going to blow my mind if they actually go so faithful to the comic, right? They don't have anybody telling them what exactly, to do. Exactly, which is awesome. They can do anything they want, and yeah, if yeah, you don't yeah. want to watch it, you don't have to pay for it. They got Daredevil back from Fox. My fingers are crossed that the Fantastic Four reverts back to Marvel. Oh my God, what they could do. This talk of an Inhuman series. Defenders is also a miniseries that they're trying to do, which means that would be Hulk, Namor, Doctor Strange. And weirder characters like Hellcat. And Nighthawk was the first stab at doing a Batman character for Marvel. But then Steve Gerber got his greasy hands all over Nighthawk and made him into a failure of a businessman who <laughs> is not very good at things. I always love the fact that Marvel characters can't do what they do well. And which makes them immediately more human to most people and relatable, which I think is one of those kind of defining points between Marvel and DC Well, it goes all the way back to Spider-Man. Well, Fantastic Four, to the idea of a team where people argued with each other. Yeah, exactly. Didn't happen before Stan had that happen. So then, because of, you know, the closure of, of Dragon Lady, which happened when? 2012. 2012. So that was relatively recently. You managed to move over to the comic book lounge. The comic book lounge was very much two or three things that were relatable to Dragon Lady that made me a good person to kind of help them start off with. The fact that it was a gallery and so there was an art emphasis, and that's something that was very much a part of what the Dragon Lady thing was, especially related to graphic arts and comic book related arts. We were in the same neighborhood, literally a block away. Customers didn't have far to go. And so it was fairly easy for us to encourage people to try a new shop. It was essentially a continuation. I think in some ways it was an attempt to make a better Dragon Lady or to make a shop that could have all the good qualities of Dragon Lady without any of the bad qualities. As a comic shop, let's just talk about the comic book lounge and gallery for a second. It's a lot more of a lounge feel. Yes. There's couches. I, I actually wanted to have a lot spot. of that. I wanted to have a lot of that at Dragon Lady, but that because of John's, say, 1980s marketing concept. The idea of having a chair mm. where you could have stock was something that was an anathema. 
For me, it's my favorite shop now. I'll go out of my way to go to It's a great, great store. I recommend it to anybody. Even Silver Snail at its new location started to do a yes. whole lounge. Well, sort what of you're thing. seeing is second generation stores now because when the snail opened its new store, it was entirely George's store now. Uh, as far as the comic side of things are concerned, the coffee shop I understand is a partner that's running things. But generally, this was okay. How would you make the store that you want to run? And that's very much how we approached the comic book lounge when it started. And this is getting away from the stereotype of what a comic shop is. and more It's getting into- away from the dusty basement. And the dusty basement, in some ways, is, is recognized as being one of the things that really prevents people from checking out the hobby. Uh, I tend to call the hobby the hobby rather than calling it comics and fandom, because it's more than just comics and yeah. it's more than just fandom. A fandom is its own thing and isn't necessarily related to retail. Most comic stores are run by people who have no retail experience at all. They're probably not all running them now, but they're started at least by people who had next to no retail experience apart from a love of the material and an interest in making money off of it. John Burnett, who created Dragon Lady, was a history teacher. He got into comics as a secondary thing as an offshoot of his own love for this stuff. The time that the stories were created, they were all created by men who had no knowledge whatsoever of how to appeal to women as far as marketing or, I would argue, in many other ways. Now you see an emphasis on a more unified experience when people walk into a store. It's less of a boys club. It's more of a retail store and less of a barber shop that happens to not cut hair. Stores do signings, but it is a gallery space as well, too. It was for a long time, and it's less of a gallery space now. I can't emphasize enough the influence that the influx of women into the hobby has had. Stores, they would present themselves as inclusive, and then as soon as a woman would walk into the store, she'd realize how exclusive they were. Any minority was, really. That's something that is greatly underplayed as far as a lot of the mythology of older comic stores is concerned, is that it was something that was an inclusive place, and it wasn't really. If you were a person of color, or if you were any kind of minority, or somebody like yourself, I mean, how many places were wheelchair accessible? Even if they are on the ground floor, I mean, a lot of these places well, think of Dragon are with so the packed, that it's so packed with stuff that, that you can't, you can't get, get the chair in. Right. Fortunately, my ability level is such that I can park the chair outside oh, sure, and, and yeah. walk in. Yeah. But there are a lot of people that I know that can't get in because sure. they literally so have to read outside. when retailers are asking themselves questions like, so why are people going to chapters and paying literally twice what they have to pay in any other comic shop? The idea of being able to go to a place where you can get access to the stuff and then be able to buy it just because you want it is something that has been outside of the hobby for such a huge number of people. I mean, whether or not that limitation is something that's set as a physical limitation because of walk-ups or because of the way the store is laid out, or even some kind of social limitation. And the social limitation I'm talking about is a limitation on the part of the staff (laughs) when they're dealing with people who aren't necessarily within their own bailiwick. That sort of thing is very much something that people are looking past now, thank goodness. It is so unnecessary in fandom in general. It's got to be a lot more like diplomatic and a lot more open and a lot more... I think that you have an obligation that if you like something to share it with people. And I think that anything that is done to make something that you love exclusive because you love it is very much the equivalent of two kids in kindergarten fighting over a set of blocks and one of them screaming mine and holding it to their chest. And that's not exactly a behavior that we encourage in people who are three or four years old. So why are we encouraging it in people who are 25 or 30 years old? But it's still so pervasive. It is. People get into the hobby for their own reason. One of the things that, unfortunately, people do when they get into the hobby is sometimes they kind of stay stuck at the level they were at when they got into the hobby. Or there's associations with the things that they like are kind of there. And that's unfortunate because it doesn't have to be like that. 
We should also mention that the lounge decided to carry over Dragon Lady's artist community that was Again, getting the store, right? We're a block away from Raid Studios. Yeah. Dragon Lady was a block away from Raid Studios, and pretty well everybody lived in the neighborhood. The bar that was next door to Dragon Lady was a place where a lot of the artists used to hang out when they were just looking for something to do in the evenings when they had to get away from the drawing board for a while. The community itself is very much part of the location. And something that Dragon Lady learned, unfortunately, was that when people are forced to change their shopping habits, that you lose a lot of customers who never come back as a result of that because they become more accustomed to shopping in the place that they've been forced to go to because they couldn't get to the place that they wanted to go to. Mm -hmm. And people are habitual, and that's something that will develop. So, I mean, really, it was a lot more luck of location, I think, when Dragon Lady was concerned than any kind of master plan on the part of the people who were organizing things. I was lucky as somebody who was managing the store as somebody who fell into that after it had already been established. I met you at the comic book lounge because I couldn't get to Dragon Lady. And I mean, to be honest... Well, we've met in a phone call before that. I should wind it back a little bit. I interviewed Joe because I was doing an article on a show called Fanboy Confessional, which looked at a bunch of the different communities in fandom, from steampunk to real-life superheroes to furries. There was a time that Doctor Who fandom used to be in the place that furry fandom is. You know that? Wow. Yeah, that's how low on the echelon Doctor <laughs> Who was in, in North America. And now it's not as we prepare for the 50th anniversary. Now it's, it's, it's like an event. Now it's just behemoth, but yeah. any show can have a 50th anniversary if they're off air for 16 of those 50 years. <laughs> exactly. So I was talking to the creator of Fanboy Confessional, and Joe was part of that in terms of you know what the publicist had referred me to. She said, there's Joe Kilmartin, and you can talk to Joe Kilmartin. And I had heard of Joe just because of his ubiquitousness in the community and how people would tell me, like, he's the comic shop guy. I don't just sit around the community. I sit around. Yeah, yeah, that everybody knows, and you should know him, and everybody seemed to know him except me. We had this very pleasant conversation about real-life superheroes and the culture of that, and then... Dragon Lady closed, Mm -hmm. and then I started going to the comic book lounge and gallery because of the events that they were putting together, and not because it was anywhere near convenient or in the neighborhood or anything (laughs) like that. (laughs) For those of you who don't know Aaron, he literally has to cross town on one of those kind of travel mopeds that's made for people. Mobility scooter. Well, some people will not even know what a mobility scooter is. What the senior citizens drive that you see. Fairly exposed to the elements, and we're in Toronto, folks. And then struggle up a two-flight staircase to get up into the comic book lounge, which he does. And it was funny because every now and then, Kevin and I would be sitting behind the counter, and, and I'd hear the clunking on the stairs. It's like, oh, here comes Aaron. And Kevin's like, really? And he's kind of looking around, oh, yeah, you're right, here he comes. But Aaron and I used to hang out quite a bit. We would, essentially, I would park myself in front of the counter, and (laughs) as he's trying to do his job, Mm. we'd have these marathon conversations about not just fandom, but the sociological analysis of fandom. I would interview him for articles. That's how it started. You know, you're a good analyzer. You're a good source. You're a good person for perspective. Thank you. That's really (laughs) helpful for a journalist. So, you know, I do articles I on... I agree with all of that. No. Thank you. And it's not just me. I mean, you've been in other articles before, too. Yeah, that's true. Right? It's not just me. It's because you're able to give a layman perspective and a unique perspective that isn't so insular, but very broad and people can understand sometimes it. Sometimes too broad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and very fascinating. So, literally, I would, like, hang out for hours talking to Joe and other people, too. 
And since then, I'm a regular customer at the lounge when I can get out there. Sure. And again, there's a nice community there. It, but you'll find this in any store. You'll find a community in any store. It's the beauty of this hobby is that when you can get past sometimes the unfortunate buttonholing, you really find people who have a love of the stuff and who are ready to share that with people. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a good note to end on. What does the future hold for you, do you think? You're out of- I'm unemployed right now. Yeah, you're you're out of the retail area Um, of comics, right? uh, I've done about as much retail as I think I can do. I want to get going doing more review work and doing more online work because that's something that I used to do a lot of before I started managing Dragon Lady. When I was working at Dragon Lady but not managing, I had the time to be very active on LiveJournal and a few places online mm-hmm. as far as stuff was concerned. And it's something that I very much want to continue to do in the future. Um, monetize it. (laughs) (laughs) Your mouth to God's ear. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't really work that way. I think the idea of monetizing your hobby is dangerous. I would much rather be making my living doing something other than the thing that I love, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is, is funny. that sort of the lesson you learned by doing retail? I think so honestly, much, yeah. That you just Charles so Schultz very famously said, "Comics will break your heart." It comes from all the other stuff. It's not the thing that you love. It's all the other stuff that either has to be done that you can't get to. Or the stuff that interferes with you being able to get to the stuff that you yeah, love. So once it becomes a job. I think becomes, as soon as anything becomes yeah, a job, yeah, it's not fun it's anymore. It's not fun anymore. This is the thing. If you go into something expecting to make a lot of money, it's always a gamble. But if you love something and you're ready to build something around something that you love, if you make money as well, then that's gravy. Well, and you have to be good. Like a lot of people just think there's a sense of entitlement that if they follow their passion, they'll be able to make money off of whatever they do, regardless of their level of talent or acumen in that field. There's going to come regardless of demand or market or anything that other people are looking for. Any final thoughts? I think we should wrap up. Final thoughts? Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> Are you happy with how this went down? The first I episode am, of Speech uh, Bubble? I'm really apprehensive to how it's going to sound, but no. I always am for these things. So right. You're used to hearing me talk at length. That's nothing for you. But yeah, this has been wonderful. And thank you so much. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com.